The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> and it looks like, sounds like you've, you've made some news. It's very exciting, very exciting. And a, uh, a testament to this Sangha that's grown up here and a testament to the Buddha Dharma that it's coming alive in a whole new world on a whole new part of the of this world and uh, it, it's really great I mean when you think about it you, you said it was a long haul but five years ten years I mean in considering <laughs> considering what's happened in the last five or ten years uh, you know it's been pretty a pretty quick rise because of the richness of of uh, the Dharma and also because of the hunger for people um, hunger of people in this culture to find a different way that I think we all realize we need some new kinds of behavior and some new perhaps metaphysics to to support a shift in behavior. I want to talk about that uh, a little more this morning. But first, I, I think I would like to start with an update on the universe. Um, <laughs> that is where we live, of course. Um, just the, uh, this morning, I, I get the astronomy picture of the day comes up on my on my search engine when I when I turn on my computer and today there there was a beautiful picture of the a new newly discovered and photographed well simulated photograph of a galaxy a new galaxy called the sombrero galaxy which is shaped like a mexican hat and contains 600 million suns and uh you know, I mean, it's. What do you what do you say to that? <laughs> Six hundred million suns. What's really exciting in the news of the universe is that the Kepler Space Telescope is searching for planets that could support life, and is finding hundreds. Of, of planets in our galaxy that they think could support life. Planets in uh, the so-called Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. <laughs> Hundreds of planets that could support life in our galaxy alone. And they're just starting the search. And considering that the latest estimate is that there are 100 billion galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies, a hundred billion galaxies, there's a great likelihood, probability, that there is life everywhere, all over the place out there. And I think that's really good news, because it takes the pressure off of us. We no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. <laughs> what a relief. We can relax.
I was just reading, actually, in the New Yorker, just a couple weeks ago, the, an article about the mathematical physicist view of parallel universes. And someone was asking this scientist, uh, or, or, or complaining, and, or not complaining, but just saying, I, how can anyone, I can't imagine a, a parallel universe to this one. You know, and the scientist said, well, if you weren't here, could you imagine this universe? <laughs> the wonders of living in our time and what we're, what we're beginning to understand about the world, the universe, ourselves. And that brings me to my uh, topic We're also living through a real critical moment in the history of our species, the history of life on this planet. Um, Oceans um, polluted, becoming acidic, food stocks dwindling, climate upheaval. Um, I mean, the list of impending disasters is long and ominous and the one that always uh, disturbs me the most or somehow makes it more graphic is the fact that the leading biologists in the world say we are now living through the fourth largest extinction spasm in biological history more species going extinct at a faster rate uh, than ever before sometimes something like 1,000 times the standard rate of extinction. And uh, there are some, perhaps, fixes that can be uh, concocted for our problems. You know, matters of engineering, some decisions that need to be made, matters of politics. But I think underlying all of our problems is this major issue of how we understand ourselves in the scheme of things. Truly a question of who we think we are. It's a spiritual question and it's a metaphysical question and it's a question that the Buddha started to ask many, many centuries ago. I sometimes jokingly say that uh, into all, of, all of the Dharma can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. <laughs> the disciples come to the Master and they say, and the Master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? <laughs> and if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again <laughs> until you do get it. How you come to see yourself in the scheme of things determines how you will feel about your life and its value and its purpose and how you will treat other people and the environment depends on who you think you are and what you're doing here. So that question has been asked in all spiritual traditions. 
In Zen, they have some very colorful ways of asking the question. They say, who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? Or who is it that's dragging this corpse around? The Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. We go through our lives believing we are in here and the world is out there. We believe that we are always acting on the world rather than realizing that we are of the world and the world is acting through us. Now, a caveat here, the self is not bad, the the sense of self. It's almost, it's universal to all forms of life. Even a single-celled being, an amoeba, has has a membrane around it to sort of define its boundaries and maintain its own integrity. It's almost the definition of life is to have a sense of self. But we seem to have come to uh, an uncomfortable and um, unharmonious degree of individualism in our time, in our particular species in this culture. Um, Einstein said... uh, A problem cannot be solved by the same consciousness that generated it. And that's what we're, a lot of what we're doing here is is really trying to shift consciousness and shift our sense of identity. Um, So all life has a sense of self. The Buddha's great breakthrough was to see through that membrane and realize that We don't exist separately. We don't create ourselves. We co-arise with all things. And that was a huge breakthrough. I think it's interesting also to realize that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The clothing of self wasn't always quite this tight. If you had encountered a peasant or a desert nomad a few hundred years ago and asked them, what do you want to do with your life? They, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. Rollo May, the uh, psychologist, 20th century psychologist, says, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. (coughs) There's been some studies uh, and analysis of early Greek literature that suggest that the early Greeks thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which now, of course, we would consider schizophrenic. 
Of course, now we think all the voices in, the, in our heads are ours. <laughs> which is its own form of delusion. We do seem to have come to an uncomfortable extreme in this idea of, of separateness and individuality here in our time, the land of, here in the land of individualized license plates, you know? I mean, it's, it's all about me, isn't it? We've lost what the anthropologists used to call the, the participation mystique. A sense of belonging to a tribe, belonging to um, nature, uh, belonging in a much larger sense than we have now to, uh, to entities that are, that are bigger than us, giving us a purpose that's not just individual gratification, but um, has a wider meaning. A lot of creation of a sangha, creation of a retreat center is, a, is, a, is one, of that, one of those larger entities that we can sense ourselves a part of and gives meaning to this existence aside from our individual uh, search for satisfaction and gratification. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's a little suffocating and, and uh, isolating to think that we are on our own, you know. That's, that's the story that our, our, our society tells us. Everybody's on their own. You make it or break it on your own. Um, you know, it's the source of our, our political crises and our ecological crises, I think, and our individual unhappiness. So we need a new story. I think of it as an upgrade of our mythology. Joseph Campbell said, The old gods are dead or dying. People everywhere are searching, asking, what is the new mythology to be? The mythology of this unified earth as of one harmonious being. How do we understand ourselves as part of the life of this planet? Not set down here to run it all, as we have, have believed over, over much of our history. I mean, our major religions have come to regard the earth as like a training planet, right? It's where you come to learn some lessons or burn off some karma, <laughs> and then you go off to some other place where you truly belong, right? I think that's, those stories are dysfunctional. They take our reverence away from this world and this life. And ironically, you know, even though we still largely believe in those old stories, our science is giving us a whole new story of who we are. And not just, uh, you know, a, a big picture, which is pretty uh, intimidating and uh, sort of a blow to your self-esteem to think that there are a hundred billion galaxies. You know, we thought we were, we thought we Milky Wayans, we, you know, we, we were the only ones... If we do find life in another universe, we will, or another galaxy, we will have to become uh, galaxy identified. We will be <laughs> Milky Wayans. 
And then in the intergalactic sporting events, we will chant, hey, 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 Milky Way, you know, it's, a, it's our galaxy. But aside from that, science is, is, uh, is showing us how interwoven and interconnected we are with all things. For instance, your body made out of heavy elements formed in what we now know, uh, uh, formed in the early uh, history of the universe, an explosion of supernova. Uh, we are stardust. We are golden. <laughs> no, forget that. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock, this is not poetry, this is science. We're composed of all natural earth ingredients. We are certified organic, every one of us. <laughs> Where else did these bodies come from? I mean, if you rub your upper and lower teeth together, you can feel the hardness there, the bone. It's calcium, phosphates, silicates, basically the clay of earth magically molded into your shape, into, into you. You're, you're earth walking on earth. Earth sitting on earth. That's a new kind of shift of identity, a new feeling. Uh, and we're, we're built out of all the life that came before us on this planet. Right now inside your skull, there are Three brains. You thought you only had one. You have a fully functioning reptilian brain, fully functioning mammalian brain, the limbic system, brainstem is the reptilian, and then the neocortex, the new human brain. And they grow in each of us in the same order they grew in evolution. And one brain doesn't override the other brains. They're, in fact, they're intricately interconnected. And there's a growing body of evidence, serious evidence, that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> this is really, really the case. We're, that we're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. That the verbal, you know, thinking part of us comes in pretty late in the game of, our, of what we do and how we are. So, we are part of these grand projects. Life on this planet and, and the history of the cosmos and... Unfortunately, the scientific information, what we're, what we're discovering about ourselves, can sort of lie rusting in the neocortex. And the question is, is, how do we make it come alive? How do we turn that, our new understanding of ourselves into wisdom, into embodiment? How do we make it embodied within us and uh, have it guide our understanding of ourselves and our behavior? And that's where the Buddha Dharma comes in. Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible. We need a new experience of what it means to be I or me. 
The Buddha laid out the path in the Satipatthana Sutra. I'm sure you may be familiar with that, many of you. Because I know Gil is your teacher, and uh, I'm sure he's done a good job of letting you know what the, what the Buddha taught. Uh, but the Buddha was like a scientist. I, I see him as perhaps the first scientist who developed this quality of mindfulness, which is actually a tool to be as objective as you can be, right, about yourself as the subject. So, you know, you kind of step out of your drama and simply observe. I, I think of the Buddha as a naturalist, going into the wilderness of self and kind of taking notes. And, okay, there's a, there's a thought about my mother over there, and there's a, <laughs> some bear scat over there, and some, uh, you know, a, there's sadness coming in, maybe for later. Uh, you, you are a scientist. You're, not, you're, you're looking at yourself as much as possible without prejudice to see what's there and how everything works. Um, and the Buddha said, as, as we explore ourselves, he said, ask these questions. This construction, self, what is its cause? What is its ancestry? What is its origin? If we really begin to investigate, we will see that this is not I, this is not me, this is not mine. That all of our experiences is built on streams of causes and conditions, you know, going back gazillions of years, who knows where, to other universes, you know, that we didn't, we don't make ourselves, we don't create our own, uh, our own experience. We can begin to understand it and see it, and that's the, the beauty of being born in a precious human birth is that we can actually see our conditioning and see what we inherit from the past and perhaps find a little freedom. Perhaps. If we don't see it clearly, we are completely lost. We are completely mechanical beings, just kind of acting on what, what the past compels us to do. I'll use my own experience a little bit as an example of uh, of how meditation practice, the Dharma, shifted my, my sense of identity. Very simple example. When I first started meditating, I used the breath, as many people do, as my object of, of concentration. That's where I put my attention. It's a way to settle my mind and give it some, give it some focus, some strength of focus. But after a while, the breath became a great teacher for me. First of all, that taught me that I don't breathe. Breath breathes. That it's going on all the time, and, and, and before I bring my attention to it, it's going on, and after I leave my attention off of it, it's going on. If I tried to stop breathing, if I held my breath, I would pass out and breath would continue. It's like life got in me and wants me to live. Um, 
I think Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because <laughs> you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. So breathing began to, to show me that, there, there, that life goes on kind of in, within me and without me. And there's all these processes that are extremely important to my life that go on without my lifting a finger and without my conscious attention, heart beating, food digesting, you know, breath breathing. And after a while, the breath became also a kind of an identification marker for me. It's sort of like, I'm one of the breathing beings. I am one of the live ones. And I started to let the breath carry the mystery for me. It was, every time I sit down now, I, I feel my breath, and it's not just, there's my breath, you know. It's, it's more like, what is this thing, this life, this thing I call life that I am leading? And here it is, and here it's revealing itself in this, this pulse that goes on. And if with a little reflection, I, I recognize that the breath is connecting me to the entire plant kingdom. You know, with every breath, we are exchanging nutrients. Uh, with every breath, I'm a cell in this great breathing being, the, the planet Earth. You know the Earth breathes, and uh, in the nighttime, uh, the oxygen level, on the nighttime side, the oxygen level goes down, and then in the morning, it come, when the sun comes up, the oxygen level goes up, and it's like a great daily breath the earth is taking. So, just a small example of how the experience of meditation can begin to shift your sense of identity, of who you are. It happened with my body, uh, I, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka. We used to sweep our mind through our body, feeling the sensations. Uh, a powerful lesson in anicca, in, in impermanence. After you do that for a number of weeks, <laughs> as Goenka you know, put you through your paces and uh, you sat for eight hours a day without moving and he's chanting Anicca, Anicca, and you're just, you're, you dissolve and you realize that the body is a process, not a thing. And um, you begin to realize that uh, what should be obvious, that the body is not yours. You borrowed it. Uh, I mean, I didn't choose this body. At birth, I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? You know, would would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? Would you like your hunger and sex drive built in or uh, manually operated? You just get the standard issue, right? And then... You don't control this body. It gets hungry when it wants to and horny when it wants to and tired when it wants to and older when it wants to. It's evolution's body. 
It's interesting. The Buddha said, this body is not mine. He says it. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. He and Darwin would have, you know, they would have gotten along, I think, very well. I mean, you know, and I, I could go on. And mind, I mean, the, perhaps my most, the most significant shift in my relationship to my own being has occurred in my, and how I view my, my thinking mind, my relationship to my thinking mind. Uh, we're still friends. <laughs> we live together. But we're no longer quite so codependent. Because one of the first and most shocking insights, I think, of, of most people when they go to meditation retreats is that their mind is out of, their thinking mind is out of control. You know, you're supposed to put your attention on your breath and your mind starts. Uh, fantasizing and planning and doing all of its things without even consulting you, you know? It just (laughs) goes off on a tear. And, you know, that's really pretty profound because we are so identified with our thinking. We think that's who we are. You know, I I think, therefore, I think I am, you know, but it should be. (laughs) That's what Descartes really should have said. I think, therefore, I think I am. But um, that shift, uh, you know, and I think that a lot of what, how my identity has shifted in meditation has been from, um, I've been, it's changed, and I no longer identify so much with the story of my life as I do with the fact of my life. Uh, that, that meditation has brought me down from uh, this story up here, the psychology into the biology of who I am. And the biology is much more inclusive and uh, it's much more part... I mean, this makes me a mammal, right? This makes me part of that category of beings. This, this body and this breath uh, bring me into family with uh, other, other beings that are embodied it's not just this individual story. So, you know, this is a very, uh, I, I think this is a very powerful uh, result of meditation practice and I think a big part of what the Buddha intended. You know, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. That we are really part of it all. We're really so integrated into the world. And uh, it can be such a relief to, to experience that and to begin to embody that. This is the mammalian condition living through you. I think of uh, I think of it as think of it this way: your individual human life is first and foremost life. Secondly, it is human. 
And thirdly, and narrowly, it is individual. So, and I think the more we can understand that, the more uh, careful we will be with other forms of life and the more our behavior will be in harmony with, uh, with what the earth can sustain. And um, I think deep ecology and liberation are one and the same thing. So, uh, I, I was told I should quit a little early, so I will, and maybe just uh, have a little time for a couple questions or comments, if anyone has any they would like to share on this subject, which is all and everything. That's my <laughs> subject. Not I'll have to read you poetry. <laughs> you give me a great deal of joy. The last time I was here, I was very upset at you, and I came and asked, what do we do about the war in Afghanistan? And this time, it's just like it puts it in a, a gentler perspective that people will do what they will do. I'm happy. I'm glad. I, I'm glad that had the effect. Thank you, Wes. You're one of a kind. Have you heard the joke? The, the, Buddhists go to a, the Buddha goes to a hot dog vendor. What does he ask for? All and everything. Yeah, make me one with everything. Make me one with everything, right. <laughs> I want to make sure you have it in your repertoire. So yes, <laughs> I do. I do. I thought you had it. <laughs> uh, over here. Oh, go ahead. Uh, that was a hard act to follow. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, Wes, could you say just a little bit about what your book that's about the baby boomers and Buddha is a just a could you give a little si just snapshot? Well, it's it's partly about my own uh, search, my own spiritual search, and you know, going to Asia and encountering various you know teachers. I was on the radio in the Bay Area for a lot of those years of the late '60s and the '70s when all the the new age was sort of being seeded. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the misadventures and the adventures. And it, it's, it's fun. It's kind of a light, lighthearted uh, look at that time with a serious intent, of course. Uh, but really, when you think about it, it's just uh, 20, 30 years ago, there was one or two yoga, yoga studios in San Francisco, you know, a uh, couple of teachers maybe, the San Francisco Zen Center. And now, you know, there, there's, there's multiple 
meditation sittings every night and yoga studios on every corner and you know it's a it's an evolution of the revolution or something <laughs> but if you, actually the book uh, the, I, I wrote a book called Buddha's Nature which is a, a lot about evolution and Dharma and how they kind of inter, intertwine and support each other give each other uh, you know, insights. Uh, the the Darwinian revolution is just uh, phenomenal, and and I've been trying. I, you know, I I'm not a scientist, and I I'm uh, you know I try to keep up with some of this stuff. And the unraveling of the genome is just phenomenal, showing us how how connected we are to other species. You know. Uh, it should be kind of obvious. If you look at, at other species of life, including insects, we all have the same floor plan, you know, with a head on one end and a tailpipe on the other and <laughs> elongated body and, and uh, instruments of mobility coming out, you know, limbs coming out the same places and senses around the head. And, you know, nature figured out a great design and just keeps using it, you know, um, and the DNA unraveling of the genome is, uh, you know, we share 98% of our DNA, over 98% with great apes. We share nearly 90% of our DNA with mice. That's because most of the instructions for building and maintaining you are instructions for building and maintaining a basic mammal. You know, it takes a lot of information to build a nervous system and a digestive system and the whole works. You know, and then there's, you know, the human part of it comes in and, you know, the, that fo- little forebrain that uses words and, you know, it's great. We, we love it and we, you know. Uh, but it's just a thin coat of paint over the basic mammalian design. And then we share nearly... 70% of our DNA with wor- worms and nearly 50% with yeast. So, <laughs> so if we declare ourselves divine, where do you draw the line? I mean, who, who gets the soul? The, is the slime holy? Um, there's a great t-shirt put out by the biology department in Santa Cruz says, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. <laughs> humility. Humility is a big part of it, you know, what we're talking about here. So, one more. Okay, uh, he, he asked the question, uh, where's the hope in this? Uh, is it pe- isn't it pessimistic in the sense that... What would Buddha say? What would I say to Buddha? How could I find hope now, O oh teacher? How could I take, f- find hope? Well, the hope is in, in the fact that we can develop this quality called mindfulness and begin to understand how we're bound uh, by the instincts that we inherit, say, from you know, the, the limbic system, the animal brain, 
And how, once we see them with mindfulness, we can perhaps override them. We don't have to act, uh, react to everything that happens in a very instinctual or habitual way. And that the genius of, of, of human beings is to be able to see ourselves clearly and find some freedom. I mean, a lot, often this practice is called a practice of freedom. And the reason that we're gaining insight and the reason that we're doing this practice is so that we can see ourselves clearly and act freely. Otherwise, we're just, you know, it, we're, we're blind to what's going on. We're just acting out of habit. So I think it's the only hope. This is the only hope, the Buddha would say, (laughs) for us to uh, shift our behavior. Uh, Thank you. Uh, My question was about words addressed to the beginning meditator, and I think you just did that. Oh, okay, good. What is God? Um, well, I, I remember when I was growing up, even though I was Jewish, I had an image of God and he was Italian. <laughs> you remember the Jews said we weren't supposed to make any graven image, right? Uh, and uh, that, was, that was actually an, a brilliant sort of a breakthrough, you know, that God was everywhere. You couldn't make a, an image. Uh, saved us a lot of money on statues, too. You know? <laughs> but then the Italians, the Italians inherited the Jewish God and couldn't resist trying to paint him, you know. It's, um, so I had this picture of God as a man with a beard, white beard, kind of an aging bohemian, you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, Zeus, he was called Zeus. I, I, I call it the mystery, you know. Maybe there, is a, there was, you know, some kind of intelligence in... It seems like there's some kind of intelligence happening that's sort of guiding the unfolding both of cosmic evolution and biological evolution... Uh, sometimes I refer to it as the mystery as the artist formerly known as God. (laughs) Uh, But the mystery, you know, uh, who was it? E.O. Wilson. E.O. Wilson, the the biologist, said uh, to him, imagine human beings being created by random chance in the universe would be like tr- trying to imagine a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's wondrous. And the mystery, you know, should keep us interested at least for our, our lifespan on this, our brief lifespan on this planet. So, do what you can to see that this little biosphere project continues and uh, thank you all for being here I appreciate it and uh, I'm really excited for you I'm proud of you and and it's great what you've done down here so 
Oh, I, I left a, a flyer over there. I'm doing a, a performance in San Francisco of a, a monologue that I perform, and it's going to be at the Freight and Salvage, June 2nd and 3rd. There's some flyers there. Uh, so come and, and join if you want. <laughs>